This is the Growth Enablement Madness Podcast. And here's your host, Jim Ward. Welcome to Growth Enablement Madness, where I get mad as hell when a company isn't growing or scaling and they're using technology. I'm Jim Ward. I'm CEO of BrainCell. And today our guest is Ed Kless from Sage Software, who I've known for a long time as well. Ed, welcome. So great to be here, Jim. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And thanks for having the best microphone again. We just had a, another podcast this week where they had a great <laughs> microphone. And I've got Mike Envy. So yeah, well, look at you. Yeah. yeah. Professional podcaster. <laughs> yes, right. So we're the neophytes here. Can somebody look up neophyte just to let me know if I use it right? No, you're good. <laughs> okay, I'll, thanks. I'll provide a description later. Awesome. Good. And so I know a lot about you, but the audience obviously doesn't. So tell me about yourself. What makes you tick? What do you do at Sage? Give it to me, brother. Well, I'll start with my why. My why is that I believe that entrepreneurs continue the work of creation. And I want to do anything that I can to help entrepreneurs in that work. And fortunately, I've I've worked my way into posi to position at Sage, which I personally think is the best job anyone could possibly have because I'm more of an academic than I am a business type role. And I get on podcasts. I have my own podcast. I talk. I do presentations. I'm not responsible for revenue. And yet they send me a paycheck every two weeks. So it's a, it's really a wonderful, beautiful thing, actually. Uh, in all seriousness, I, the way I and I've, I came up with this term meta consultant about two years ago, because what I do is I primarily consult with people who do consulting, whether they be folks who do CRM systems or ERP, or even with our Sage Accountants Network folks, which is where I technically report into now at Sage. And these are folks who just recommend our products in a lot of cases to their customers. So I, I want to make your businesses better. I've never been a person to say, you know, how can I help you close this deal or transactional? How much are you going to do for us this month, this quarter, this year? But what is it that I can do to help you make your business better? Very much in alignment with what you guys are doing from a growth enablement strategy. So I think it's a good synergy here. Yeah, it is. Thanks. We've often talked about that. So and also I want to introduce my sidekick, uh, Sarah Reed, who's our vice president of marketing. Yeah. <laughs> nice to be here, Jim. I'm just here for the laughs. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Always good to have. Well, make sure you do laugh. Required. Anyways, also I want to introduce Brian Anderson, our producer of this podcast. Hey, Jim. Thanks for showing up today. <laughs> Thanks for having two in a week. <laughs> All right. So uh, I didn't want to continue with some questions with you, uh, Ed. Uh, tell me, what are you currently reading or what have you recently read that is one of your favorites that you've... Now, uh, currently reading right now, I'll just hold it up for you right here. So this is uh, The Data Detective by Tim Harford. Subtitle is The Easy Rules to Make Sense of Statistics. And it is absolutely incredible. Uh, really loving the book. I'm about halfway through it right now. But he opens with this great story about this artist or art critic who discovered what he thought to be a Vermeer. And what was interesting about it is he, he was like the really the default expert on what was and was not Vermeer paintings. And he comes across it and he was overcome with emotion, which should be the key right there. In fact, his quote is, while this is different from all of his other paintings, it is in every way a Vermeer from the master himself. Turns out that he was totally sucked in. <laughs> it was not a Vermeer at all. Uh, and, and had he paid attention to the actual evidence, like, well, it was a crappy painting. <laughs> but he wanted so much for it to be a Vermeer 
that he was sucked into it. And that's the opening story of the book. And it's it's much, much deeper than that. But I hi- highly recommend it because I think this this is something that we all are susceptible to. And that is to misunderstand statistics. And I think we are oftentimes misled, oftentimes not even purposefully by folks in the media, you know, especially with the advent of what's happened with COVID and understanding statistics around there. Uh, so many people don't understand what's the difference between the different case types. Well, you know, we say, well, it's got a 5% recovery rate or no, it's not a 5% recovery. That's only those who are actually diagnosed with the disease. Big difference between the number of cases reported and the number of actual cases out in the wild. You know, sometimes that's a 10 or often a hundred fold difference in cases. And you can get so sucked into looking at data. I've often thought of as data inside an organization is a, is can be, become a substance abuse problem. I think leaders and managers, it's like they get a little bit of data and then they want more and more and they crave it and they go deeper and deeper until the point where the data is actually meaningless. One of my favorite quotes is from Clayton Christensen, who said, conclusive data is only available about the past. And if you want to talk about growth, if you want to talk about the future, you have to have a theory that you posit and test to see if it's right or not. And unless your theory is tomorrow is like today plus 10%, which turns out to be a pretty lousy freaking theory, (laughs) you can't use financial data to predict future financial success. That's what I'm reading about right now is this all of this stuff about data. So uh, that's very interesting. And as a growth enablement company, we often work with clients around data right? Predictive data, things that will give them a sense of whether they're going to hit plan, et cetera. Does the book address those kinds of things? Yeah, it does. And what's interesting about this has been, some of this stuff has been known for years. My the, my co-host of my radio show, Ron Baker, uh, wrote a book a number of years ago called, called Measure What Matters. And he he's the one who actually taught me this concept, that the way to predict future financial performance isn't to look at past financial, financial performance. After all, it's on every single red herring that when they pass out to try to go public, they prospect us, printed on everything. Past performance is not a future indicator of success, right? It's a, like on the first page. and But yet we like to think that it is. What is predictive of future financial success is something that you can't get from your accounting system, which is something like net promoter score. If your net promoter score is increasing over time, and if you're measuring it in waves, say every month with a different set, and you see that your net promoter score is going up, I would make a prediction that you would have better future financial performance based on that, right? So you can't predict financial performance by using financial metrics, because all of those are about the past. Accounting is a past participle. We're accounting for it in the past. Yep. So that's, we're in agreement. I just wanted to make sure because we look yeah. at uh, profit and loss statements, for example, it's historic data. Yeah. By the time you get that data, it's too late. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you know, if your sales are down now, you what are you going to do to increase them over the next quarter? It takes you, well, it could take you a year to fix what happened in the past. It's a rear view mirror. That's right. Ron says it's like accountants come in and bayonet the wounded. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So, so you've got to have multi-sources for the data that are relevant, you know, to the objective you have in mind. Well, and interestingly enough, I I think that the ease of measurement of data and the use of that data is inversely proportional. In other words, if something is really easy to measure, it's probably not very good at being predictive. If something that's harder to measure is probably better at predicting something in the future. 
So there's that inverse proportion. And I think what unfortunately happens is so many people just opt for the easy metric. The the terrible, horrible story that I've seen cited multiple places is body count in Vietnam. They use body count as the metric for success. Of course, what they what they didn't realize is that, yes, OK, if you kill a Viet Cong, it's one less Viet Cong. However, if you kill the family member of someone who is not a Viet Cong, it creates 10 more Viet Cong. And even McNamara, who was the one who put this metric in place later on in his autobiography, said that that was one of the biggest mistakes of his career in life, putting that as because it was easy to roll up. It was easy to measure. That is a great example. Wrong metric. Right. And so when you're in a company or, or you're trying to get predictive data, be careful of wrong metrics. It'll guide you down the wrong path. Yep. Can't think of one right now, but maybe you could. Oh, <laughs> tell me, Sarah. Yeah. Even just like measuring from a marketing perspective, if you're only looking at the number of leads you're generating and you're not looking at the number of leads that convert to an SQL, to an opportunity, to a closed one, if you're only looking at volume of leads, like that could lead you totally down the wrong path because they may, none of them may be converting or a small amount may be converting. So it's not going to lead to revenue. And take that even further. Are, are the leads converting and becoming profitable sales? That's, see, that's yeah. even harder. So the, yeah, so, so the example of it being even harder is how do we measure the profitable sale later? Yeah. But of course, that would be a better metric to predict future success. But again, it's it's harder to measure, right? So it's that this inverse proportion to these two things. Or are you selling to the right customer because you may be going exactly. down a completely different path than what you had intended? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Sarah. See, look at you. Look at you go. See, I pay attention. <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah. Yeah. I do more than just laugh. <laughs> so, you know, I've talked about growth for growth's sake, and I think you have the uh, analogy to the cancer cell. I think, well, that's the one thing I remember you telling me. And of course, uh, so let's discuss the market share myth. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts about that. Yeah. And again, this is uh, Richard Miniter wrote, wrote a book called The Myth of Market Share back in, I think it was the early 90s. And it's one of the best books on this topic. The examples are dated. He often uses car companies as an example, but I think we can still learn from them. He said that most people think that if we grow market share, we can then be more profitable. It's the exact opposite, actually. He says you need to grow profitability first and then decide if you want to expand your market share. And now there's example after example, but the one that I, I like to cite, and I don't have the latest statistics on this, so this goes back about two or three years, but Apple at one point had 120% of the profit in the mobile phone space. I want you to think that through. How is it that a company has 120% of the profit in a space? It means what? The others are doing what? Losing money. Down, right. going down. <laughs> right. right? No, the, they are actually losing money selling everything. But Apple only had about a 30% market share. And people are like, well, look at Android is kicking their butt. They've surpassed Apple as far as market share is concerned. Who the hell cares? <laughs> right? Would you would you rather have 120% of the profit in an industry or 30 or 40% of the market share? And that's the same thing that happened with that Miniature talks about in his book. He talks about GM and Toyota. Bizarrely, like in 2005, I think it was, Toyota and GM sold within, I don't know, it's something ridiculous, like 50 cars of one another in the United States. That's how close it was. The total number of cars was within 50. Toyota was profitable, you know, two or three billion dollar profit. GM lost money. <laughs> how does that make any sense if market share it needs to be your focus? Because it's the same market share, right? 
Of course, the issue is, is that you had to take a look at GM's financial statement to learn that it was not a car company anymore by that time. It was actually a pension fund that happened to make cars. Yes, right. <laughs> Thus the losses, I'm sure, piling up. But but right, good point. about. And so that kind of leads us for uh, growth for growth's sake, you know, you know your, your cancer cell analogy. Tell yeah. me, audience, a little bit about that. Analogy. Yeah, and I'm forgetting, I'm quoting someone else. It's not, not, the quote is not original to me, and it's probably in the myth of market share, the person who actually said it. But is it growth for growth's sake is the ideology of a cancer cell, not a sustainable business model. If you think about what growth is, what cancer is, is it's cells that multiply without restraint. And this is where you have to be careful as with your concept of, you know, being a growth enablement company. Growth is good. I never want to dismiss growth, but I'm in, in business now about 30 years. I could probably go into most organizations and double their sales in the first year. Don't have a problem with that. I would put them out of business doing it, but I could double the revenue number. If that is solely what I'm supposed to do, double revenue, I'll make it happen, but you won't survive. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is why we underscore in growth enablement scale, which is the concept of improving your net profit margin or your EBITDA. We talk about that all the time and that it's more about creating a greater value at the bottom line while you're growing. So and thus the technologies that we're providing to help for that scale to augment humans, for example, high cost. I think technology is getting us there. Now. Yeah, it is because... Eking out variable cost is the second most important thing in growth that enables profit, profitable growth, I should say. If you can reduce your variable costs, and that's what a lot of systems do. <laughs> the number one driver, by the way, is price. Your ability to, to, to hold your price and set your price is the number one driver in profitability by far. It's a, by a factor of at least two or three. So, for example, you know, I hate, but I guess this is, you know, part of the deal is you have to use Apple as an example. They have $300 billion in cash. <laughs> and they do that because Apple is a great pricer. They are a great pricing organization. They know how to set and hold price. They have no desire to be the low price leader in a particular market. In fact, the exact opposite. These headphones that I'm wearing are $600. And I was happy to buy them. I love them. They're the best headphones I've ever had in my life. So they can be a price driver with that. Because they're the price leader in the industry. Because they, they are willing to sacrifice market share for price. These don't go on sale. And even if they do, it's like a $20 gift card on the day after Thanksgiving. That's <laughs> right. That's all you get from Apple. <laughs> it resonates with me because we're a bootstrap company. We've never taken any monies from the outside. So we must grow through scale and profit. We can't grow as the earlier example would suggest just for growth's sake. No. And let me just one step further on this. I want you to think about it. like so many companies think that all right, discount and even it's reflected in financial statements, right? When you see the revenue less discount, right? Where did the discount is at the top line, right? That's not where you should put it on your financial statement because a discount is not off of the top line. It's actually off of the bottom line. There's no difference in cost. So a 10% discount off your top line is incredible because you actually have to bring that to the bottom line. What you should do is you should do net income and then put discounts underneath it. Interesting concept. I wonder how all these SaaS companies would perform because you look at a lot of these SaaS companies today who are growing exponentially. I can think of a few. I'll leave them nameless. 
but what's happening with them, right? Uh, they're growing and they're, yet they're not profitable. Tell me your thoughts there. It is fair. And it, but the reason is, is because they have changed the business model. They are what John Murillo calls, they have automatic customers. They don't worry about, are we going to have customers next month? In fact, they can predict what their revenue is going to be next month within 98% certainty. Yes, right. And that's why the, they are highly valued because they can predict that revenue. Whereas a company that has been selling on-premises solutions and even doing consulting on on-premises, you've got to get a new customer every month, every quarter you got in order to keep that going. Whereas if you have the automatic customer, you have that subscription model in place, you already know what your predicted revenue is going to be within a fairly high level of certainty. And that's why these companies are valued the way they are. Love it. Yeah. We were talking a second ago about uh, adding technologies for scale. A lot of AI being talked about that includes AI, artificial intelligence. We, we talks about machine learning, natural language processing, but that comes with some change, right? Because I think there's one of the things that's happening is there's fear that we're going to take jobs away from humans. So let's just talk about change a little bit, change management, getting folks over the hump of thinking about these things that it's not going to right? How do you deal with change? Well, it's such a great subject too, but I'm going to go to a hero of mine, Werner Earhart, who was the founder of EST. You might remember that, Jim, from my parents were a little bit involved in this in the 70s, the Earhart Seminar Training, EST. Can't say that I know. Okay. So he's a really interesting guy. If you watch The Americans, did any if, if you either any of you watch the, yes. the, the TV show The I've Americans? I just started watching okay, it. Okay, now you hit on something. <laughs> I'm I do in. Know. Okay, so <laughs> so <laughs> Philip Philip is going to Est. That's the group that he's going to. If ah. in the second or third season he starts to go to the Earhart okay, Seminar, I'm the not Est. there yet, so don't. It's don't not. It's not, it. a, it's not a big spoiler. It. It's not a big spoiler, <laughs> okay. but. He right, kills exactly. everybody. Him, him, go, him going to S doesn't <laughs> really doesn't doesn't spoil it. But, okay. he does, but, that, he but wipe that's, that's what out. we're talking about. No, and the reason why you should know Werner Earhart too for for one reason and one reason only is he's one of the few people who beat the IRS in a tax case. They they came after him and he won in tax court. He beat the crap out of him in tax court, which is why he's my hero, by the way. Okay. <laughs> so. Um, but but he said this, he said, all transformation is linguistic. If you want to change the culture, you must change your language. So let's talk about this in terms of subscription, too. I used to say I, I want people to stop who do professional services or, or professional firms. I don't want them to call them clients. I want them to call them customers. Now I don't want you to call them customers. You know what I want you to call them? Members. I want you to get members. You remember the ad campaign for American Express about 15 years ago? Membership has its privileges. Yes, it does. Love yes. that. And what you thought of as clients or what you thought of as customers to now think of them and you thinking of them and them thinking of themselves as members, members in an elite group that is your company, that you provide them access not only to your brilliant brain, but the brains of everybody who is also a member. Good. I see Brian writing this down. This is perfect, Sarah. Be, because you know, I was noting it, it too. <laughs> because in in my view, in my view, there's four forms of capital. There's financial capital, which we all know. There's also the 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 structural capital, which is like our our the stuff that's still in the building when we leave. So our computers, our phone systems, all that. That's the structural capital, right? We also have our intellectual capital, which is our knowledge. But the fourth form of capital is our social capital. 
And your grandmother put it this way. It's not what you know, it's who you know, <laughs> right? And I submit to you that the most valuable form of capital that we all have is our social capital. The four of us on this line here are unlikely to ever be completely and totally destitute, even if our businesses lose money. Why? Because there's probably some many people in our lives who let us sleep on their couch if push came to shove. Because of the people that we know, the people who are poorest in this world are those that lack social capital, lack access to other social capital that have no literally nowhere to go. Excuse me. Team's message just in from Sarah. She said, no couch surfing here. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, but, but oh, that's so interesting to think about. Teams messages are not supposed to be <laughs> yeah. brought up on. You don't, the first <laughs> right. rule of teams is you don't talk about teams. No, I'm kidding. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I, you know, I, I think yeah. that that's, and if you can create a mystique around your organization as a membership organization, an elite group that people want to be part of, that's the allure. That's the example that John Rillo uses in his book, Automatic Customer, is you know what Club 33 is? Any of you know what Club 33 is? Okay. It's a building, 33 Main Street, on all Disney properties that you have to be a member of in order to get in. They have a waiting list of about six years long. You can Google it and try to join. <laughs> it's also the only place, especially in Disney World and in Disneyland, where they sell alcohol. Just a little tip. <laughs> Plus the six-year waiting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? But it's an exclusive membership club within Disney. What well, Pelotaton has this now, too. I, th I think it's called the Emerald Club. These are all exclusive. Yeah. Is that, how it's, is that how it's pronounced? I don't know. That's how Peloton? I pronounce it. Peloton. Peloton. Yeah. Peloton. Peloton. Okay. Peloton. Peloton. Okay. Peloton. Thank God I wasn't out of the loop no, on that <laughs> But, they, but I, knew, I, I, know they, I know they do have I know they do have this thing called an Emerald Club, which you have to be invited in by someone else's in it. And again, it's this creation of this exclusivity that is huge in value creation, in, in my view. How do you create that mystique around it? So but getting back you know, to your question about be, it, it, sorry to interrupt, but Clubhouse yeah. is another new app that's come yeah, out yeah. that is yeah. exclusive same to that. Thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. same thing. Yep. Right. You yeah. got to be invited in. I have a, my dentist will only take new patients by referral. Like you can't, unless you know someone to, who goes to him as a dentist, you can't get in to see him. We all want to be where it's hard to get into. Mm -hmm. The nightclub has mm -hmm. a line outside or, mm -hmm. by the way, I'm not in the nightclubs anymore. Just a note. <laughs> but I mean, these are the things we can learn from this and apply it to business. And I think the exclusivity thing, I think is something important because that's one of the things that you can do as a small business. It, it almost by definition, you're small, so you got to create exclusivity around it. That's by definition. Right, <laughs> right, right. So we, we're talking about change. I guess, how do you begin to make change happen in organizations? Yeah, and that's where the language comes in. And I, I really do think it is something as simple as changing the language that you use to describe whatever it is that you, like using member instead of customer. I'll give you an example, Jim, and, you, and I know you probably remember this, and there's a lot of good and bad that can be said of Stephen Kelly, who's a former CEO of Sage. But one of the things that he did when he first came in within the first month or so of him starting his tenure as CEO is he changed the language of what we call each other inside the organization. It was no longer team member or employee, but colleague. So now, and it still is, and he's gone two years, we still refer to each other, it's sage colleague, my sage colleague. And you will hear sage people use that term. 
will say sage colleague, my sage colleague, my sage colleague, my sage colleague. And this is very weird coming from him because I know you met him on several occasions. He was a very proper and meretricious Brit, right? You know, and tall and tall and tall. Yeah. Like drop dead, beautiful kind of guy. He, he, he looks exactly like the guy in the crown who played Prince Philip in the first season. If you, I think they were separated at birth, but there's uh, a little, a little <laughs> him, I, I agree. Him, but he, a little Conan O'Brien too. Yeah. Yeah. There's a little Conan O'Brien, but I will, I will say this. So, but he said, if you introduce me, he said this in an internal team meeting and here's our CEO, Stephen Kelly, it's right. here's my colleague, Stephen Kelly. I love that, by the way. We really try to embrace that here. So it's that, but the but point is, is that language changes matters in people's brain. Yes. Yeah. So you and I were talking at one point and we had a great analogy to this language and the word, I think it was train. <laughs> <laughs> yes, training versus education. A lot of companies provide training, training, training. In fact, I heard somebody said this earlier to me today, and I, I actually had a chance to talk about this. This is the second time today. <laughs> Sarah, you're a marketing person. What can you charge more for, training or education? Training. Oh, Sarah. <laughs> training? You can charge more for training or education? Education. Education. <laughs> education. Right. Because think about, think Listen, about education. Listen, you can't fool me twice. What is it? Fool me once. Education. Think about it. Like education from a perspective is if I go to a school and I'm educated, right? Trained? Oh, I see. Like versus like yeah. going to like a tech. Horses and dogs are trained. We're potty trained, for God's <laughs> sake. So here, but, but, but here's the coup de grace on this. Would you rather your 17-year-old go to sex training or sex education class? Education. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 I think that's, there's a, yeah, that says a lot right there. Uh, well, let me think about that for a second. No, no, no. Think about their age, your 17-year-old so, child. Yeah. We don't want them going to sex training. That would uh -huh. be, that's a whole different industry. Uh, it's a whole different industry. But the point is, and I think this is important and it's crass, I admit it, but with a point, a moral point, education has a moral component to it. Education has a righteous, a righteousness about it that training mm -hmm. doesn't. Mm, I really like that. Yeah, but it's, so that shifts my thing because in business, when we think about monetary, it's really the training. I think about like the training courses that we're spending money on, not necessarily like going to a webinar to learn for education. So it's a little bit of a... How about instead of, and this is where you, you can in, include a modifier, mm -hmm. product education. So product education as opposed to training. I personally would rather be educated. Right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so educate me on the product, on the use of your product. Don't train me. Train, you know, whips, you know, you're gonna, you are, you will be trained. <laughs> Here he goes again, back to another industry. <laughs> so no, it makes sense. <laughs> So, so, uh, so yeah, and it, by the way, and I, I love words. My my dad taught Latin, so he he would often we were you know remember that the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding? You guys saw that one, right? And there's the running gag in there. Give me a word, and I'll tell you how the origin is Greek. You know, <laughs> and they would like throw stuff at him. So, but it was like, it was like that growing up in my house, except with Latin. So my dad would be you know mortgage. You know what mortgage means? Uh, what dad? Well, it's a concatenation of two Latin words, mort which means you guys probably know this one, mort, death, right? Mortuary, mor right? Death. And gage, which is Latin for pledge. A mortgage is a death pledge. Ooh, ooh. 
<laughs> makes total sense now, doesn't it? Right? It sure does. Oh, yeah. We all have them, so. <laughs> yeah, you but, just bought a house. I don't know. But, mortgage. It's a, but it's a death pledge, pretty much, Brian. I'm just saying. They're, you know, they, they got you first more than anything. But here's the thing. Education comes from the same Latin as extrude. It's to draw out of. When we're educating someone, what we're doing is we're drawing what they already have out of them rather than training, which is putting crap in, right? So what we're doing is we're taking their knowledge and and extracting it from them so that they can bring what their gift to the fore. He sure leaves us with certain things to think about, doesn't he? Hey, so so <laughs> let, me, let me ask you this question, and I'm not sure there's an answer to this. Is there a role in technology here? How can tech be used to support the changes in business thinking? Is Absolutely. There is a huge role for technology in all of this because what technology does is enable us to do things more effectively for others. One of the things you were talking about earlier was this fear about machine learning and, and artificial intelligence taking away our jobs. Artificial intelligence and machine learning will take away tasks, but it won't take away jobs. The reason is, is because we as human beings are incredibly creative in our ability to come up with new and innovative ways to serve our fellow man. And this goes back to my why. Entrepreneurs continue the work of creation. Jobs that exist today did not exist 5, 10, 20 years ago. The people who say the jobs are all going away, we're all, you know, and and by the way, I, I count Elon Musk and a lot of these, they all think that we need UBI because we're just going to sit on the beach and sip martinis and, and Mai Tais <laughs> or whatever, while the rest of them do all the work. That's not going to be the case. We are incredibly innovative in coming up with new ways to serve each other. And that's where jobs come from. Jobs come from us thinking about, I can do this for someone else better. This is why the worst idea for capitalism, what I would call capitalism, or better yet, innovism, market innovation, is Wall Street. What a terrible, terrible knowledge. In fact, I talked about zero-sum game. There's a line in Wall Street. It's a zero-sum game. It's a zero-sum game. Wealth isn't created or destroyed, merely transferred from one perception to the other. It's wrong. The best movie to understand the wonders of innovism, market capitalism, is pay it forward, is how can I figure out a way to serve someone else, even though they don't even, I don't even know who they are. I submit to you that all of the time that you're spent in educating yourself and growing, the people listening to this podcast are learning today so that they can serve a future customer that they don't even know exists today. That is altruism. Impactful. I, I'm growing my knowledge every day so that I can help somebody in the future with it. That's why I want to learn. And so you mentioned artificial intelligence and how I see it, and, and I think in how you've you've discussed technology in this role is it's releasing humans from these repetitive perhaps tasks and allowing them to increase their creation to be able to better serve yes. the next. Absolutely. In fact, the book I was reading before the one that I mentioned was by Virginia Prostrell, and it's called The Fabric of Civilization. It's all about the history of fabric. <laughs> so, it, so it's simply really the evolution that's going to take place. We have evolved uh, 100 years ago. We were not doing what we're doing today. And so, so one of the things that she brings out is a pair of jeans, a pair of blue jeans, has six miles of thread. Wow, who knew? <laughs> and it would have taken... Oh, and don't it, say it, Sarah. Mine do not have 10 miles. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, 
we hear all about, in fact, the looming industry is one that oftentimes is used in the, in the examples that we talk about of jobs being taken away. The real jobs that were originally taken away were from the spinners who were creating the thread. I mean, most of human history, for most of human history, and women spent the overwhelming majority of their adult lives spinning thread because that's it took six miles to make a pair of pants. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Nevertheless, a sail, which is like 60 miles or a bed sheet, we don't even think about clothes. So what, what Postrel puts forward in this book, and I love this, you know, how the idea that any sufficiently advanced technology would be viewed today as magic. I think that's Isaac Asimov. Right. If, if you didn't know what a what a remote control was, you would think that that was magic. That's how it did it. It was uh, absolutely magical. But she says the, uh, the inverse is also true, that anything that we absolutely take for granted is viewed as just part of history. Like we don't appreciate the fact that the clothes that we wear, all of the fabric around us took thousands of years to create this incredible industry that now has employs so few people as to be mind boggling yet close all 7 billion people. Yeah, yeah man. Uh, you know, it's always fascinating to hear you because you are a true intellectual, but you make it easier for me to understand because you sometimes have to talk to me like I'm a five-year-old, eh, six maybe. So, and you do a good job at that, but you always enlighten. And I really appreciate that. But, you know, this is a good segue to our techtainment session. This, tech is, yeah. this is rather new. Okay. We're going to ask you a couple of questions that reveal a little bit about yourself. Sure. And so are you ready? Yeah, go for it. All right. Here we go. What's the one topping you don't believe belongs in a pizza? Pineapple. No question. Yes. Okay. Yeah. okay me too. <laughs> I totally Just agree. Horrendous thinking about that Hawaiian no. pizza. You, you ruin pizza with a, that's yeah. just fruit yeah. in general, right? No. Okay, somehow, Brian. you know, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I could have probably guessed that with Brian. What do you think? Uh -huh. Totally yeah. a pineapple yeah. pizza guy. All right. Early bird or night owl? This is, I think, very interesting for you. Early bird or night owl? Gosh, I will have to say that that I alternate between the two of those. It's it's very weird. I tend to be more seasonal. You know, I, I guess that's, you know, part bear or something. But I, te I tend to sleep longer in the winter and go to bed earlier. And then during the summer, I spend way more time awake and functional. So it's it's more of a seasonal thing for me. Interesting. You, odd. Let me ask you this. Do you eat more berries during the winter? <laughs> yeah. Okay, no, because no, he's sleeping. That was sleeping. You know, I probably silly. drink more, though. That was So that could be the reason uh, I'm thinking about it. So it's could be, it, could be the, it could be the grapes and the wine. That might be doing yes. it. <laughs> All right. Last question. And this one, I, I got a kick out of our uh, extraordinaire podcast producer has given me this one. All right. Would you rather fight a hundred duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? I have to first get the images in my mind for that. what that would be like. I yep. think the one horse-sized duck, because you got a hundred things flying around you or running around and you got no chance. At least with one thing, you can sort of keep it in front of you. That's that's the way I would look at it. I'm still up in the air. <laughs> they are. No, I know, you just get I know. a bunch of bags of bread. I'm with Ed. One horse-sized duck. Feed it some bread. Uh, but, I can, but they also can't run for shit. I mean, so, I, so I'll probably. <laughs> I'm sorry if you have to bleep that out. I don't know if you guys are clean. No, no, we don't bleep anything out. No. Uh, bleep. Well, listen. 
Hey, this has been awesome. We want to thank you for joining us. Uh, it's Ed Kless from Sage Software. Can you tell the folks how they get a hold of you or find you? Sure, a couple different ways, but ed.kless at sage.com is the email address. Love to hear from people. I would love for you also to listen to, to my radio show and podcast, thesoulofenterprise.com, and you can go to, go to that and see the website where we do have show notes to all 300 or so plus shows that we've done previously and and as well as uh, previews to upcoming shows. So Good plug. It's an awesome, uh, awesome show. Uh, I want to thank our marketing maven, Sarah Reed, our podcast producer, Brian Anderson, music by Sam Ward. And I want to, and I hope I get this right, Davenio. They do all our editing. They do our distribution for this podcast, which can be found everywhere podcasts are found, Spotify, Apple, wherever else they're found. So I want to thank you very much again, S, for joining us. And we wish you the best. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Bye.